1: We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing. Mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com.
0: This week on Hangar Talk Everything is going plant-based, including tires.
1: And we find out about the other NCAA.
0: If you see construction in Oshkosh this summer, it's probably not what you think it's for. And we're going to
1: talk about stupid pilot tricks with consequences.
0: Finally, David, Aero Schaffen is in the books. It was a good one. We'll go through a couple of the news hits. Ian, are
1: you ready to do some hangar talk?
0: Let's do it.
1: From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hanger 1056
0: Turn right heading back three. With, With your hosts,
1: Ian Twombly and David Tulis, This is Hangar Talk.
0: Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. David, our guest this week, a really cool woman you actually sat next to on a flight, of all things. <laughs> And then caught up with, you guys were headed to the same event, a WASP reunion. Erin Miller, she was a driving force in getting those WASPs recognized.
1: Indeed. And uh, it was all about reinterment at Arlington National Cemetery. The women Air Force service pilots from World War II just wanted the same, I I don't want to say freedoms, they wanted the same privileges Mm -hmm. as other, same treatment as other aviators. And Erin was great. She's got two books. And she'll tell us about that, and she was just a fascinating person to hang with. And I wanted to thank her for being such a good host at the WASP 80th reunion out in Sweetwater, Texas.
0: Okay, awesome. So we'll talk to her in a few minutes. First, the news. I guess, you know, I said tires are going plant-based, and I suppose you could say they already are plant-based, right, with uh, rubber trees and latex. However, um, a lot of those materials are from international sources, tropical sources, and the DoD is looking into new sources, and so we might benefit as well in the GA world. Dave, you'll never guess the new source is dandelions. They are testing dandelions, dandelions as a rubber source.
1: How tasty! And you yeah. know you've had a dandelion <laughs> salad. You know when you hold a yeah. dandelion up to your chin, you can tell if you like butter or not. If it, if it right, the yellow, shines yeah. yellow, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, we're not talking about yellow, uh, yellow shiny stuff. We're talking about really replacing some of that rubber components with a special type of dandelion and uh, there were 2500 species of plants tested and, and and I can't even pronounce the one that took yeah, the, the one the yeah. one at the top that was the, the only one that worked but it's a species of dandelion known as tk and it might be a, an alternative to natural rubber pretty cool yeah
0: yeah it is cool and I tell you if it happens it won't be too soon because Anybody who's replaced aircraft tires recently knows that supply is absolutely an issue. In fact, the uh, episode of Ask the NPS that just came out a couple days ago, May 1st, uh-huh. the first question is about a guy who just could not find tires in stock. And so he was asking, can he go to a different ply? And should he go to a different ply? Um, all the hosts talked about the same issues. They've all had uh, tire supply problems. So, yes, this would be a great benefit, I think, to the tire industry, especially because they say it's like it can harvest in six months, I think, the dandelion. Yeah,
1: that looked really enticing to me. And, you know, that's an interesting sustainable future for that product. So I could see, and you know, perhaps, Ian, and this is just wishful thinking, maybe some airports with excess land, might even be able to grow some dandelions oh, cool and harvest that. that, and it'd be kind yeah. of a really neat recycling thing going on yeah. there, huh? Yeah, yeah, that is cool. So now it's it's a serious endeavor though. The Air Force is going to test this out over at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio, because some of these uh, plants are going to be. Um, in the ground and harvested up in Ohio. And starting with the spring of 2022, which is where we are right now as we record this, the spring of 2022.
0: Yeah, very cool. Yeah, so we'll keep our fingers crossed that that works. That's really neat. Okay, moving on. The National, oh boy, here we go National Collegiate Athletic Association, that's NCAA, right?
1: Yeah, but we're going to talk about the National Center for the Advancement of Aviation. That's what's confusing to me. the yeah. other NCAA. The
0: other NCAA. Yeah. Hopefully this one is a little less controversial. We've talked right. a little bit about this sort of thing in the past. This is FAA and Congress's push to strengthen the aviation workforce. Specifically, we're talking about a bill that's going through Congress. Right now it's H.R. 3482, the US House Committee on Transportation and Infrastructure the TNI committee approved this and so it is moving along 200 organizations across aviation have expressed support for it and there is a, a companion bill in the Senate so so we're getting there
1: yeah and look it's a, it has 62 bipartisan co-sponsors and i think that's significant the word bipartisan i think is significant yes. Because a lot of folks recognize that the aviation industry, aviation and aerospace industries are the wave of the future. And we have a severe pilot mechanic shortage. We've been talking about that for years, you know, to the tune of 600,000 pilots, maybe 625,000 maintenance technicians. And we've got to fill those ranks some kind yes. of way. Yeah. And, and, you know, as we talk about some of the other stories on this program later today, we'll learn that there's so much going on in the world of aviation, we just have to have people available to fly and fix the things that, we, that we're in.
0: Yeah. So the idea here is to be sort of a testbed. I think they would develop curriculum, they would hold workshops, they would do training. Yeah. So all in the pursuit of trying to increase that, uh, that workforce, strengthen the, the training programs, the pipelines, that sort of thing. So yeah, we watching this one really closely.
1: And Well, before we move away from that, I was going to just point out to folks who might have a concern about it, is it politically motivated or not? Mm. This is a not-for-profit entity. No general fund taxpayer dollars would be used to support it, but it would instead be financed by those who use our nation's aviation system – and contribute to the airport and airway trust fund. I think that's pretty important to point out. It's mainly yeah, private sector contributions, point. and it would be prohibited from involvement in any political or legislative activity. So yeah. sort of a, a, a one st- you know, standing off away from uh, political allegiances, just this is for the betterment of aviation and aerospace
0: purely. Good point. Okay, David, so I want to label this one news of the weird. AvWeb is reporting, that there is, of all things, an eVTOL terminal being planned for Oshkosh. It's been funded. They're talking about breaking ground very soon. So I guess if you want to fly into Oshkosh this summer, potentially in your eVTOL, which, you know, <laughs> will be no one. Yeah. You'll, you'll have a place to hang out and charge it.
1: No one yet. You know, Whitman Regional Airport is getting ready to have an update at the terminal anyway. We, uh, we report on that a little while ago. Our e-media team has been all over that. So we're looking at an eVTOL charging facility. So it's one of those things that if you build it, they will come. I think that's what the promoters are, the idea, are thinking yeah. about. Yeah. And have have a charging station ready to go. And I think that this is pretty ambitious. Eight months from now, these vehicles will be available for purchase by anyone Anywhere in the world, this is Volatus co-founder Grant Fisk talking about eVTOL aircraft. So, uh, you know, eight months, that's a pretty robust statement to make. But if it happens, there's going to be a charging facility at the world's biggest air show.
0: Yeah. I would put my money more, like, on eight years, but he's, he's, uh, you know. uh, He's optimistic. He's an optimistic guy, and I guess that's why he's the one, you know, Doing the construction. Yeah, they're talking about 500 grand that they got funding for to be able to do this, which is incredible. Serious money. He does make the point, and he's right, that basically when Teslas came out, they came out sort of ahead of the infrastructure.
1: Yeah, and then how do you charge them unless you're at yeah, your house? On a trip. What do you do? Yeah. You can't really
0: yeah. go on a trip, right? Exactly. So they're saying, well, okay, we're not going to be part of that problem. And I, I commend them for that. But uh, anyway, I, hope, I actually do hope it's ready for Oshkosh or soon after because it will be cool to see it if not this year, maybe next year, just need to see what one of these things is going to look like and what their concept is. So keep your eyes peeled for that. And we'll be right back. David.
1: Keeping our eyes peeled, let's look out for stupid pilot tricks. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. The, 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 the YouTube is filled with them in the past week or so. It's yeah, crazy.
0: It is amazing. I mean, we see this kind of every once in a while, you know, somebody doing something kind of silly in an airplane or out of it, as the case may be here. But, boy, there's been what three maybe in the past week and a half that uh, that have kind of hit one let's start with the one that that actually happened first but is now we're hearing about the consequences this is uh it's trevor jacob he's a former olympian he's the one who bailed out of the Taylorcraft, filmed the whole thing said he had an engine failure but the airplane was all equipped with cameras he had a selfie stick when he bailed out and um the faa didn't take too kindly to this stunt. No, we'll not it. at all. Yeah. And yeah. you know,
1: people people online started tearing this uh, effort apart right from the get go. If you watch some of the video that even that Trevor even recorded, you can see him flying over an emergency airfield. He didn't make any effort to restart that airplane. You know, he didn't talk to ATC, declare an emergency, or anything like that. These are all things that we have sort of been trained to do from the get-go by our instructors, look for an emergency airfield, first of all, best glide, you know, and then, um, you know, aviate, navigate, and communicate, you know, let people know what's going on. So, and it did not end well that day for his uh, 1940 Taylor Craft, and it is not ending well right now for Trevor Jacob.
0: No. So, FAA has sent him a letter for an emergency revocation for Careless and Reckless, which I guess makes sense. It's, you know, I, I, uh, this one seems kind of open and shut. I don't know. There isn't word yet if he's going to appeal it or not. But um, if you haven't seen the video, I would say go see it, but maybe don't. In fact, I was a little surprised about this. It's only been viewed about 500,000 times. So I know this guy, if, he's, if this is a stunt, and what I think we can assume it is, you know, he's sitting there planning this out, and he's like, oh, man, this thing's going to get millions of views. It's going to pay for the airplane. It's going to, you know, make, him make his profile that much higher. This, i got to think he thinks this has been a flop. I mean, it has a lot fewer views than I would have expected for a stunt like this, and the feedback obviously has been very negative.
1: I mean, that was negative from the get-go. He was wearing a sport parachute, and uh, you know that's uh, unusual. And then, and then uh, some other folks pointed out that he, when he bailed from the airplane, he had a he had a fire extinguisher tucked inside his lower leg. That was interesting, and and a bunch of other inconsistencies. So I, you know, I don't know. I, I he's obviously in a lot of trouble right now. The New York Times took it the case to point and started tearing apart his story a little bit, you know. And uh, and the FAA determined that he violated FAR 91.13 operating single engine aircraft in a careless or reckless manner so as to endanger the life or property of another.
0: Yeah. So, so the next one, which we're all talking about also, and you've probably seen the video, which I don't know that I want to call it a stupid stunt, maybe just poorly managed. This was the plane swap, the Red Bull plane swap. I would say this one, if you haven't seen the video, definitely check it out because it's pretty fascinating. And it's, it's interesting to watch what happens to one of the 182s, but you know the setup. Two 182s, two skydiver pilots, they were gonna, in midair, swap airplanes and then land successfully. Um, they were 50% there. So the other, unfortunately, 50%, resulted in an an erect airplane but a safe pilot so that's good i'm curious what you think david this this i mean red bull's known for pulling off crazy stuff but they they tend to do it with a lot of planning i think behind the scenes that people don't see and this one i i don't know i have mixed feelings about it
1: it's interesting because they're skydiving cousins so these are these folks are related first of all they're both you know uh, pilots you know bona fide pilots so what happened was one of those Cessna 182s looked like to me via video video that it entered a flat spin. Yeah. The, aerpl- the airplanes almost collide also. Yes. I don't know if you saw that yes, part of I it. Did. That looks scary. That's but scary. Ian, Ian, have you ever been skydiving? I'm going to admit I haven't yet been skydiving.
0: Once. I went once. It was like once was enough, you know. Did it. Been there. Done that. Could you
1: see yourself skydiving into an airplane behind a propeller? I mean, I don't know about this.
0: I'm with you. That's the one thing about this whole thing. I thought, okay, you know, I know people have flown, have flown, What I don't know what that, free falled into things, skydiving before, you know, you see them in cars and all kinds of silly stuff. Okay. I, I get it. It's not my world. And, and if they want to do that, but yes, I saw the video and the fact that the prop was still windmilling. I oh, was flabbergasted. Yeah. It's like, man, if he misses... You're chopped
1: up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a real problem. So the the bigger problem for this effort was the fact that the FAA denied, you know, the request to do this. And uh, yet the folks that participating still went on with the show because I think it was all for a a Hulu show. It was like a yes. pay-per-view thing. Yeah. Almost like back in the day when we were watching Holyfield and Mike Tyson box, you know, it was a pay-per-view thing.
0: Yeah, it was a big deal. So, yeah. 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 So
1: I don't think the views are worth the risk. Um, that's just my opinion, but um clearly they did not pull it off as intended.
0: Yeah. It was interesting. You know, they had modified the airplanes. There was a speed break, kind of a custom speed break below to try and uh, moderate the free-fall speed. They said there was an autopilot setting that, that kept it in a dive. You're right. The one airplane did go in, into an inverted flat spin and essentially like over-pitched and then went to a flat spin. I guess, yeah, a couple of things. You know, people are sort of lamenting the loss of the 182, and that's true.
1: I am too. I mean, it's hard to find a 182 on the used market. There was a highly yeah. modified airplane, though. There yes. was a lot of avionics in there and a lot of electronic electronics to keep that airplane flying with no one in it.
0: Yeah. In fact, the photo that, you know, the still that, that we have leading the story and that I've seen a lot, you can clearly see there's a 430 in there. And it's like, man, the screen on my 430 is bad. I want that 430. It's like, why yeah. couldn't you take that out before you did this? It's <laughs> a good point
1: too. Yeah. So very nice panel. Absolutely. Yeah. I agree. Yeah.
0: I think this is something in concept. I'm like done professionally. Okay, I'm, a, I'm all right with it. Um, but you're right. They they didn't they were denied. And part of that is protecting the airspace because there was a, right. an Embry Riddle airplane that flew right through the middle of this whole thing as it was going on because no one knew what was going on. You know, they didn't it's like you got to protect the airspace for something like this.
1: True. And the other thing is that uh, you know, when you look at stunts like this or the Trevor Jacobs stunt, it really puts a, a black eye over a lot of general aviation and that's what mm-hmm. I worry about more you know, we're not so much about risk taking, at least I know I'm not, you're not, the folks I fly with are not. So, this makes it look a little conspicuous from the outside looking in. And we at AOPA, we strive so much to get folks on the straight and narrow and, you know, do the right thing and train and take courses from ASI. And here you are at the opposite extreme, you know, exploring the outer envelope of aviation. And to me, it's just an interesting optic uh, that I'd much rather
0: avoid. Yeah, that's a great point. And actually, it's a, it's a really good reminder that if you're, if you're really into these stories and into maybe some of the consequences, Richard McSpadden, the head of ASI, and then actually Jared Allen, AOPA's deputy general counsel and a pilot, they put together a video that talked about what some of the consequences here are going to be. And so I, that's a really interesting watch. It's about 15 minutes, so definitely go on the website, check that out. It's, it's worth a view.
1: Yeah, and they also brought into the mix a little bit of, uh, about, about Trent Palmer, who is um, a widely known YouTuber who has preached a lot about safety and does a lot of backcountry flying, uh, exploring that backcountry envelope. But he's been a pretty staunch, you know, remi- he, he staunchly reminds folks that he tries to do this stuff. Uh, with a lot of foreplanning and, um, and pre-flight planning and, and really analyzing what he's going to do. But it, he got into a little trouble a couple of years ago. The story's just now coming out, Ian, that he was overflying a friend's property intending to land, but he didn't land because some of the earth had been moved around for a motorcycle track, a little motocross track in the backyard. He didn't land. A doorbell camera from a nearby neighbor caught that. They, I guess, sent it off to the FAA. And Trent's in some trouble too.
0: Yeah, yeah, that one, that's different because he's doing what should be the right thing, and then boy, maybe right. for that, so that one's not so good. But
1: now he, he's, um, uh, we can't say too much about it, but we did have a story mm. and, uh, yeah. and about it. We we actually talked a little bit about it. I think Richard did on that analysis when he was uh, talking about the Red Bull event. And um, just another reminder that if uh, you are not, you should also consider joining AOPA and the Pilot Protection Services Package in case you do run into in any issues. In case you need it, yes. Yeah, right, right.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, good point. Um, all right, let's 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 quickly wrap up today with the news about Aero Friedrichshafen. So this just happened very recently. I think it was last week as we record this. This is the GA event over in Germany, and it is... If you've never been there, it's very technology focused for looking a lot of lighter aircraft, because that's obviously what's popular in Europe. And so Tom Horn was there covering this for us and had some really interesting pieces come back. David, there's two things I'm particularly excited about, but tell me what out of what he reported, what uh, what are you liking?
1: Well, you know, I'm interested in the Pipistrel setup there. You know, Textron recently bought into Pipistrel, and we're, we're looking at a little bit more in the way of electric propulsion technology, and it seems like it's maturing a little bit more. That was interesting to me, and you and I talk, talked off uh, the show a little bit about hydrogen propulsion. And so I think from a technical standpoint, those two are neat. I think your eyes are somewhere else, though, uh, in the aero <laughs> World, where are they, Ian?
0: Yeah, there are two things in particular. One is this yunkers Well, there's a couple that they've put out, but the there's a replica. They're calling it the yunkers A50 Junior. This is an airplane from, oh boy, maybe the 20s or 30s. Super cool looking little airplane. This has a Rotax engine, MT prop, Garmin panel, so it's all modern. But it's got that yunkers traditional corrugated aluminum skin this little torpedo-like fuselage, tandem open cockpit, low wing with the spoked wheels. I just think this is the coolest thing. I love it.
1: It's a neat-looking aircraft. I and mean, The whole design concept is, is pretty sexy. The two-hole you know, fuselage, I mean, I get it. And, and that would be neat. Now, what's the price on something like that, Ian? Let's bring it down to brass tacks.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's important. The first 29, they're offering at 179,000 euro. So including the VAT, so you don't have to pay the VAT, <laughs> So, which I Value think— Value-added tax. I got yeah, you. don't quote me on this, but I believe if you're going to buy it for export, I believe that they will that they take that off, but, of course, knowing that you're going to have to pay tax in the States. But, yeah, so, okay, so it says here, made in flight February 1929 for the original A-50. Wow, how about so, that? Yeah, very cool stuff. I think that's—I can't wait to see what that's going to be like when people fly it. The other thing, and I'm partly interested in this because I'm working on a story for the magazine— is small turbines. There was the Turbero that came out of Sun and Fun. Okay. Some other people like you know the Sonics are flying with small turbines, but the JMB, which is this really sexy looking LSA, they've put some kind of cool engines in airplanes. They are now putting in a little turbine, and it is the coolest, coolest little airplane.
1: Well, it sounds pretty neat on the video too. You hear the turbine whine of this thing crank up. And it is a slick, low-wing airplane. And, it, I mean, it reminds me a little bit of a, of a cross between a Air and maybe a Cirrus. Yeah. It's pretty sexy little thing. Now, I don't want to put you on the spot too much for this, but, I mean, how much would something like that cost with a, yeah. the turboprop?
0: Well, this is the—yeah, that's really the point, right, is that— These turbines are still really expensive, and so I think they're saying just the engine is a hundred thousand bucks. Okay. So that's you know you're talking about double or triple, probably triple the price of the current engine. But future fuel, you know, future fuel proof, so because you can always put jet fuel in it and everything else. They've flown this thing like eighty hours, so it's it's been out there flying around, yeah.
1: The airframe itself also is similar to their Rotex-powered airframe that they've mm-hmm. had out for a while. So it's a proven design, yeah. and that is something that we could probably get. Now, I wonder if we could bring that to the states. I know it's a YASA yeah. uh, certified, but is that something we – I wonder if we could bring that to the U.S. and fly around in that as an LSA.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I mean
1: – Certainly not with a turboprop. Yeah, yes.
0: exactly. Exactly, because, yeah, LSAs have to have reciprocating. Mm-hmm. So, But we'll right. see in the next couple of years. Very cool stuff. Then that's and that's Friedrich Schaffen. Always has kind of neat stuff. Diamond announced a quick charge, electric. I mean, so some really neat stuff, I think, that we're gonna see over the next couple of years.
1: Absolutely. Well, we gotta uh, we gotta look forward to that for the future. And then by the way, if any of this does come to pass, you can get it charged up over at Aaron
0: Miller. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's right. Um, all right, David. So from the future to the past, Aaron Miller, really dynamic person that you met on this flight she she's just you got to have such energy and such passion for these issues to be able to push them through like she has and, and really excited to hear about how she was able to do that some of the barriers she faced and what she thinks the future of the wasps are.
1: Welcome to the show, Aaron Miller. Thanks for being here with us. We are in Texas on location in Sweetwater for the Women Air Force Service Pilots Annual Gathering. And uh, it's a little windy outside. Folks can maybe hear that on the audio. But I want to find out a little bit more about your story. How did you find out about your grandma's involvement in the, in the WASPs?
2: So growing up, I always knew what she did, it wasn't a secret or anything. It's not like she sat around talking to us about it all the time or anything, but we knew about it. I have a picture actually, I'm maybe four or five years old and I have a t-shirt that said Gammy flew planes in World War II. So I always knew about it. I actually thought everyone's grandma was a pilot during World War II. I thought that's what grandmas did. And it wasn't until I got older that I realized, no, not everyone's grandma flew planes during World War II. So. Well,
1: let's, let's introduce your grandma, Elaine Harmon, and tell us a little bit about what she did in World War II.
2: So Elaine Danforth Harmon was my grandmother, and she's from Baltimore, Maryland. There were 13 WASP from the state of Maryland. Mm-hmm. So during the war, she joined the Women Air Force Service Pilots, and she was in the second-to-last class after training, she was stationed at Nellis Air Base, which today Nellis Air Force Base. Okay. And her duties were to train male pilots on instrument training in the BT-13. People who listen to your podcast probably know the BT-13 has two seats, one behind the other, and there's a canopy. Mm-hmm. So they would put a tarp in the canopy so you can't see out of it, and then you have to fly in the instruments. And my grandma would be in the other seat, kind of. Her, she told me her job was to make sure they didn't crash into Mount Charleston. That makes uh, sense. Is what she told me her job was. Absolutely.
1: So <laughs> she she taught in that airplane. She taught in the the PT seventeen.
2: BT thirteen. BT
1: thirteen. Yes. Boeing Stearman.
2: She trained on the Stearman. That's what I was. But then that was her favorite airplane. Okay. But when she was working, that was her job was on the BT thirteen.
1: Okay. So she her job was on the BT thirteen. She trained in the PT seventeen. Yes. She also flew some B-17 Flying Fortresses. Yes,
2: she had some co-pilot time in the B-17. Although she did tell me once that she was glad she never had to take over because she didn't know if she would remember how to fly it. And I was like, I'm sure you would have been fine. <laughs> but yeah, she did, when they were moving the planes around, she flew on them sometimes. Well,
1: Aaron, let's get back to the beginning. So now you're a, a, a child, I'm assuming, and you're, you're hanging out with grandma. How did you first learn of her involvement?
2: I genuinely don't remember not knowing that she did this, so I can't say that there was a day where it was like, oh, I knew, like, I always knew what she did. It was not something that I never knew about, so I can't really say that there's a day where it's like she sat down and told me what she did, I just, it was always there.
1: Okay. Well, um, here we are in Sweetwater, Texas, and this is the home of the WASP Museum. You told me, and we met on a Southwest flight coming over here, which is pretty cool. You told me that this is a new facility, part of the facility is new, and we're gonna have a a little bit of a big band celebration tonight. It's the 80th anniversary for the uh, wasps, and there's a whole new museum wing, there's a new gift shop, it's pretty interesting. There are a lot of cool new exhibits.
2: Yes, so over the last several years, they've been working really hard to fundraise and expand the museum. From the old hangar, which we are sitting in right now, and even they've upgraded this hangar to these offices that we're in now, which is great. And then the new building hangar over there, which is all air-conditioned, environmentally sound, for all the exhibits. And they can do, you know, rotating displays and all kinds of things over there. And so, yeah, it's really a great facility and they're trying to, you know, really honor the WASP and their legacy.
1: Well let's get to that legacy because um, when I started at AOPA it was in 2015 and I know that you have been fighting the fight to get the wasps uh, reinterred at Arlington National Cemetery. I know this was a tough deal because there was a lot of resistance. Can you walk us through
2: that? So my grandmother died in April 2015. And my grandmother had gone to many funerals of fellow wasp at Arlington National Cemetery. And she decided that is where she wanted to have her body laid to rest.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And mostly because, A, we're from Maryland, so it's nearby, it's not like... But B, because millions of people visit that cemetery every year. And her thought process was, people are walking around the cemetery, like tourists, and they're learning about all these different people that have served our country, and they maybe see her gravesite and they see WASP, and they're like, what's that? And then they Google it or something, and they learn more about them. So she was kind of trying to think of her final resting place as a teaching moment, right? That was kind of the main deal. Okay. So my grandfather was a civilian. He's not laid to rest at Arlington, he's in a civilian cemetery. Mm-hmm. So she would have to be laid to rest there on her own merit, her own service as a WASP. Okay. During the 1970s, they had a fight to get a law passed to recognize them retroactively as veterans because during the war, there was a bill in Congress that did not pass, and so they were never formally commissioned into the Army. Mm -hmm. So there was a law in 77, as I mentioned. There were other laws buried there, so we didn't really think this would be an issue. And after we submitted the paperwork, Arlington called my mom and told them that she was not eligible to be there on her own merit. Hmm because the law in 1977 was very specific to laws administered by the Veterans Administration. Right. And Arlington National Cemetery is run by the Department of the Army. Gotcha. So the other national military cemeteries are run by VA. So she could have been there, but she requested to be at Arlington National Cemetery. So per her wishes, we tried to make that happen. They. Rejected our application, so we contacted our senator at the time. And we, a few months later, got a letter back saying, uh, you know, here's the information we received, and we wish this could have worked out better. It was four sentences. Oh, my. And I was like, this is not appropriate, so. How did that make
1: you feel at that time? Because you knew that she had dedicated a a good year or so of her life to the Army and and helping train other
2: pilots. At first, I was just mostly confused. Uh Uh-huh. But then once we got the letter back Mm -hmm. from our senator and from the cemetery explaining Uh everything, Uh I actually got angry Uh and irritated, and I felt bad for my grandma because it was really important to her that her service be recognized. And since the 1970s, she had spent a lot of time going around giving talks and lectures and, you know, doing news interviews and all of this to make sure that their history was preserved and their legacy was recognized properly. And so being denied at Arlington, she would have been heartbroken to know that they were denying her last wish. Essentially, after all this work that she, she and the other women have gone through for so long to just just be recognized for their service. So I started this campaign on social media to have people be aware that this had happened,
1: mm-hmm. and
2: unfortunately, it gained a lot of momentum. Yes, and. Through that, uh, more and more news people were contacting me, doing stories, and then eventually we got the attention of Congress. And So member of the House of Representatives, Martha McSally from Arizona at the time, was in the House. It was her first freshman, freshman session, right? Our freshman Congress, I should say. And she learned about this through the news with her staff, and she herself is a 26-year veteran of the Air Force, retired as a colonel, she was an A-10 pilot and actually the first woman to fly combat missions for the Air Force after they lifted the restriction on women flying in combat in 1993. Okay. So she conveniently was in the House of Representatives and was of course very uh, you know pumped to introduce this legislation and make sure that these women were properly recognized. So from that point forward, I spent a lot of time on Capitol Hill visiting with senators and members of the House. I met with more than 150 offices on Capitol Hill in person and then obviously many more emailing and phone calls and things like that to make sure they were supporting this legislation. And then eventually it was passed through the House unanimously and then went over to the Senate and was signed through the Senate and eventually signed by the President of the United States in May 2016. So we were able to go back to Arlington and say, well, we got this law passed that my grandmother is eligible from her own service to be laid to rest at Arlington National Cemetery. My grandmother was cremated, so her ashes were sitting in the closet at home the time.
1: <laughs> now, Barack Obama was president at the time who signed, signed that. Barack Obama was president, yes, okay. at that time. But now, this affected other folks besides just her, right?
2: Right. So the law it set na- a precedent. Right. So the law in the 1970s that got passed allowed groups who felt that they had served during World War II or previously in a military capacity where we're not properly recognized to petition the Department of Defense for retroactive recognition as veterans. Okay. So after the law got passed they had to petition the Department of Defense which took another two years. So essentially it took 35 years for my grandmother to receive her DD-214. Wow.
1: (laughs) And she wasn't the only one?
2: No. So eventually there, there were roughly 37 other groups of people. The Filipino scouts, Northwest Airlines pilots, and eventually the merchant mariners of World War II who lost more than 9,000 people that were killed. Um, They actually had to go to court and fight this until uh, I think 1989 to be recognized.
1: But for the WASP, the the fact was they were acting in a civilian capacity, I guess. And that was the hang
2: up, right? So the, the confusion is that the idea was that they were flying army planes. They were being trained by army. You know, it was an army thing, right? Yes. And when they joined, I mean, some of the WASPs have telegrams that say, like, if you don't want to join the Army, don't come here. So they were under the impression they were joining the Army. Right. And it was just going to take some time to get this bill passed in Congress to formally commission them. Okay. And while that was going on, obviously they can't wait for the war, right? They need to, you know, the war goes on regardless of what Congress does. Right. So they were under the impression they're gonna go train, go work on these planes, fly these planes, whatever, and eventually this bill would get passed and everything would be normal, but it didn't happen. So the program was disbanded on December 20th, 1944, and the bill never got passed, so they never became formally recognized as being part of the Army. 38 of them died during service, and even that they were not recognized for. Well,
1: some probably died during training. Yes, of course.
2: Because
1: mm-hmm. this is dangerous stuff back in the right. day. I mean, think about World War II. That was um, in the 1940s. The airplanes had only been around for 40 years, right. you know, and there were there were there was a lot to still be determined on how to you know operate within the envelope and that kind of thing. Plus, it just happens to be dangerous. I mean, you're you're teaching right. other pilots how to fly.
2: Exactly. Yeah, and like you said, you exactly, it's dangerous stuff. You're training plane. You're I mean, you know some of these planes are, are new or they're being repaired or what right. have you with these planes so you know you don't know the condition of them and you know
1: and the women Air Force service pilots uh, a, a lot of their mission was similar to your grandma's they would ferry airplanes around the country yes. part of the time yes they would train other aviators part of the time yes. as well. And there were a
2: lot of different tasks that they did. So, okay. yes, they trained other aviators. They ferried aircraft. So they, the aircraft would go through the factory. Rosie the Riveter would be building it. Yeah. It would pop out the end. A wasp would hop in, and then they would fly it to wherever it needed to go. They also towed targets for anti-aircraft fire, so like a banner behind the plane. Kind of okay. like at the beach, you see those beer ads, yeah. right? Yeah, so yeah, So they towed kind of a banner, and the guys would learn to shoot. At this banner, so they flew this banner. That was their part of their mission.
1: Um, I would think that might be a little dangerous if the shots were off off target a little bit. Yeah,
2: it was dangerous. Um, ironically, no, none of the women died uh, doing that okay. job specifically. Okay. Okay. Although I, I'm sure some of them came quite close. Nell Bright, I think, says something like, "Well, they didn't always hit the target, but luckily they didn't hit me," or something like that. Absolutely. But yeah, that's that's one of the more like dramatic. Jobs and uh, you know a lot of it was very routine flying like breaking in engines you know just flying getting hours on the engine that kind of thing
1: and let's not forget they were 19 20 21 years old yes
2: they were young people you know my grandma was 25 at the time
1: now she learned to fly now she learned fly as part of the it was the prior to the FAA it was the CAA. Right. And she learned to fly, did she learn to fly in College Park in Maryland in that area? Yes. So my
2: grandmother went to the University of Maryland in College Park and at the time the Civilian Pilot Training Program was part, you know, coordinating with, that was one of the universities they coordinated with. Yeah. So during college, her last year of college, there was an advertisement in the newspaper, the school newspaper, about the Civilian Pilot Training Program, which cost $40 and included 35 hours of, of ground school I believe and then flight hours mm-hmm. and it cost $40 so she asked her dad for the money because her mother was very traditional and my grandmother knew she wouldn't approve of her doing unladylike things like flying in an airplane mm-hmm. but her dad was very supportive gave her the money signed her permission slip because she was under 21 and not married okay and female so she okay. had to get permission to do this program They only let one woman for every 10 men in the program, so she got in. I don't know if it was, you know, if lots of women were trying to get in or she just happened to do it and nobody else wanted to, so I'm not really sure about that, but she got in anyway and got her pilot's license uh, through that program at College Park Airport. Well, that's a
1: historical airport also in and of itself.
2: It is a historical airport. It's the oldest continuously operating airport in the United States. If, if, the not, world, the world. if right, not the world, right? Right.
1: We're, we're still the jury's <laughs> yeah. out on that, but we. It's you said it's within a couple of days. Yeah. Yeah. Understood. So, yes. Understood. Well, that's interesting. It is historically airport. There is also bringing it back to the wasps. Your grandma has some of her flight suit and other um, other things that she used on display there, right?
2: Right, the College Park Aviation Museum has, my grandmother donated a lot of her things there. She, you know, used to give talks there and things. And her uniform is there, her congressional gold medal, her log book, okay. a bunch of stuff. I mean, obviously some of it's in the back, but on display they have things for her funeral and yeah, a lot of her items are there.
1: What does it make you feel like when you come into that little airport and you were there for the Latinas in Aviation Day last year, What does it make you feel like when you see these items?
2: Well, it, it's really a tribute to my grandmother, and I'm glad that there is an entity taking care of her things and preserving history, so other people can learn about what she did. Mm-hmm. She was not a boastful person, but I think she understood that what she did was important and was a stepping stone for other women and other people, you yeah. know, who were closed out from aviation or not just aviation, but other, you know, industries because of whatever characteristic they had. So it was important to her to have that preserved and legacy—a way for people to learn. But it is pretty cool to be in the museum, and there's people walking around, and they see the things, and I say, "Oh, that was my grandma's stuff." Yeah. And, you know, people are like, "Wow, that's so cool."
1: Absolutely. And then we're here at the 80th reunion, and a lot of folks know you. They've stopped you while we were doing our, our <laughs> interviews. They stopped you in the, in the hallways and stuff. What's that feel like?
2: I mean, it's cool that people know me, but you know, it's more cool that they know why they know me you know because leading this campaign at arlington and making sure that my grandmother and all the other women air force service pilots were properly recognized for their contributions and service during world war ii Mm -hmm. because a lot of the people here are family members of other wasps and even if their family member chose not to be at arlington you know Mm -hmm. it's still the principle of being recognized as equal to the other people that you served with who did the same job.
1: They at least have the opportunity.
2: Right, they have the opportunity.
1: How many years did that take, the The, the whole campaign?
2: So from the time my grandmother passed away until we had a funeral was almost a year and a half. Mm-hmm. In between that, we went to Congress and got this law passed. And, you know, by Washington standards, it was pretty quick. It was. So it was, it, you know, we were very lucky. And I try to explain that in my book that, you know, yes, I worked very hard and my family worked, we had all these people supporting us, but we were also very lucky with all these different people who happened to be around helping us and media people and Congress, you know, it was kind of a good mix of people helping us.
1: Tell me about the books that you have. You have two books now at this point, because I saw one on the Southwest commercial flight that we sat next to each other on. Tell us about the first book first.
2: So my first book I wrote was Final Flight, Final Fight, which Mm -hmm. I have here. Yeah. And that chronicles the campaign to get this law passed for Arlington. But I also explain it through my relationship with my grandmother, why it was important to her to to have this done so people understand why we were working so hard for this and we weren't just like, oh, we can just bury her somewhere else, right? It was important to her to be recognized. And I also explain the process of going to Congress, you know, talking to the senators and the members of the House of Representatives and working with the media and working with the public support and, you know, a lot of, most people in the country will, you know, never go to Washington and have to talk to a member of Congress to get something done. And sometimes I think it can seem like a very abstract concept, you know, this faraway people that do things, you know, and so I try to bring people into that, like how, you know, you're doing your, that's kind of our country's design, right? Going to Going yeah. to the government and getting your your your
1: you have your say
2: your problem resolved. Be, you right, want to be heard, through, right? Being heard, having someone resolve your problem, having legislation passed to fix your your issue. So I try to explain all of that in the book, you know. And obviously the history of the wasp. Sure. So I kind of weave it all together in one story, kind of through the yeah. story of getting this done at Congress. And
1: give us the name of the book one more time.
2: Final flight, final fight.
1: Final flight, final fight. And how can folks get the book?
2: So the book is available on Amazon, Uh barnesandnoble.com, you know, whatever online retailer, it's on sale. Well, it was on sale to the College Park Aviation Museum. The Wasp Museum has copies. Um, uh, Yeah, but some museums around the country have copies. Final Um,
1: flight, final fight. Yes. Very good. Now, you wrote a children's book. And it's illustrated by a family member.
2: Yes. Tell me about that. I wrote a children's book as well. And I asked my cousin, Randall Harmon, who is an artist, to do the designs. And she was very excited to do that. Yeah. So she did these beautiful paintings and we digitized them and created a children's book. And it's basically the same story, but for little kids learning to read or parents reading to their children, like age four to six or younger, if parents are reading to them. Just basically the same story, you know, a girl learning about what her grandma did in World War II. how it was important to be recognized for their service and going to Congress. and
1: though it takes it, it takes the, the concept of the wasps and it kind of personalizes it, but it's told in such a way that young people could understand it.
2: Exactly, so the story is, it's not me, it's a young girl mm-hmm. and a grandma who was a wasp. Obviously sure. it's based on my grandmother, but it's not specifically yeah. her, yeah. and I kind of just talk about this young girl being at home and learning from her grandma, telling her stories.
1: Now, you confided in me one thing that I'm going to put you on the spot for. Um, You said you were very interested at at one point in becoming an astronaut. Yes. Now, I know you're too busy to to fly right now, but tell me about that whole concept of of trying to become an astronaut. What were you thinking? About what age were you?
2: That's another thing. I was just kind of always interested in it. And my grandmother, from a very young age, would take me and my cousins to air shows and she paid to have me fly up an old airplane once and a helicopter. And I don't know, I was always interested in it. I remember she gave me a biography of Jackie Cochran once. And I think I read it when I was like eight years old. So it's okay. kind of funny. But it was one of those things I was just always interested in. You know, growing up in my my period of childhood, the space shuttle was a huge thing. Sure. You know, and every time it, the space shuttle went off, it was on the news and everyone talked about it. And I thought it was so cool. So that was something I was really interested in, you know, was the space program. And I had all the patches, and I knew all of the different,
1: oh, you know, you?
2: all the different like Apollo, Gemini, Mercury programs, and the space shuttle. And I went to space camp twice, and I was, I was like very into it. That
1: is awesome. Now you told me also that you would love to learn how to fly, get your pilot certificate, but you're actually so busy being an advocate for other folks, especially young people. Now, there's a little bit of young people news that you could break with us today too.
2: Yeah, so uh, I am busy. I have a normal job that is unrelated to aviation, but is related to veterans. But, you know, I'm so busy doing this. People are really interested in hearing about the Wasp, and I think they like hearing it from a family member with a personal connection who can explain why it's important to remember history and fight for recognition. Mm -hmm. And so I've met all of these aviation people, and part of my grandma's interest in aviation was keeping history alive you know that's why her stuff's in the museum Mm -hmm. and she loved old airplanes and she would fly in the Stearmans and anyone that offered her a ride she always went up but part of history, living history, is also the aircraft they flew. Sure. So I am starting a scholarship through the Women in Aviation International Scholarship Organization Program, Uh I'll say that. Two scholarships one for uh, learning to do having your tail dragger certificate okay and then the other one will be uh, up to five thousand dollars to do your certification in a World War II era airplane
1: to keep history alive to
2: keep history alive because obviously a lot of pilots learning to fly is expensive first of all but Mm -hmm. it seems that most people you know if you're doing general aviation that's cool but a lot of people are going through it to to get a job to become a pilot, a corporate pilot, a commercial pilot, whatever, ah. to, to get paid to do it. Sure. So most of the people that are keeping warbirds flying, you know, whether it's the pilots, the mechanics, people, they're volunteering. It's, it's a their,
1: private enterprise, generally.
2: Yes, it's private enterprise, it's people volunteering, it's their free time, you know, they are spending their own money doing this. Hundreds of
1: dollars per hour.
2: Hundreds of yes. dollars, hundreds of hours of their time Absolutely. to keep these planes flying and they're important pieces of history because yes. it's just different when you go to an airfield and you see the plane turn on and you smell the gasoline and you hear the noises see the and smoke see the smoke <laughs> right. and you can you know touch yeah. the airplane yeah. and this is a plane that actually was around during World War II and a uh-huh. lot of them actually you know flew in missions and it's just different to actually be able to get in those planes or touch them or even be around them you know. I mean, it's awesome to see them in a museum and a static display, but it's different to actually see them functioning and, and like how they move. And you know, sometimes you can even be lucky enough to get it right in them. Sure.
1: So one scholarship is five thousand dollars to learn how to get involved in and fly a warbird. Yes. And the other scholarship, fifteen hundred dollars, to learn how to, to, wait, so to basically get to tail get a, a tail, tailwheel endorsement. Yes, tailwheel okay. endorsement. Because so, that also is uh, most of the airplanes, you know, up till World War II were, were tail dragger airplanes. Right. Yeah.
2: Right. So the first step is kind of getting your tailwheel certification and then going on and learning, you know, certification in one of the various old okay. World War II era airplanes. Fantastic. Whichever one you may be interested in.
1: At, that's excellent. Kudos to you now. Do you know how folks could get involved with that or, or, should they just join women in Aviation International or how will so in order be able to, to apply to... for
2: the scholarship right. you can join women in Aviation International. Okay. the scholarship program for this coming year cycle will come out July 1st Great. this summer Great. and then the scholarships are presented next year at the conference for and the that's women usually in, in the
1: spring Yes, yes. it will
2: be uh, February next year okay. in Long Beach California okay. I believe okay uh, so yeah, so they announced the scholarships there.
1: And the women so. in aviation uh, international, I mean they, they give out hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of scholarships. Yeah, I think it's,
2: this year they gave around uh, around a half a million dollars of scholarships. That's
1: fantastic. So. Now AOPA also does scholarships. We gave out 80 scholarships to high school students last year and 20 to teachers. So about a million dollars worth of scholarships, a little bit over that. Wow. But there are many ways to get involved in aviation, scholarships being one. Now how what would you say to young people that want to get involved in aviation?
2: So, obviously there are a lot of different facets of aviation, right? There's becoming a pilot, becoming a mechanic, all kinds of different things. Obviously, I think the first thing, just do your research, find some books on that topic, but you can also, there's a lot of opportunities going to museums, going to aviation events, fly-ins, you know, and just go up and talk to some of these people. And I think aviation folks in general are very open and excited to share their knowledge and their network with people. And, and, you know, those type of people, depending on what pathway you're kind of interested in, those people kind of explain how they got there and kind of explain the best path for, for whatever that person might be interested in.
1: That sounds good. Again, I want to apologize to our, our listeners. <laughs> they might hear doors opening and closing and a little bit of background noise. We're at the, uh, the WASPs 80th. I guess is the 80th anniversary yes, celebration. The program.
2: Yeah, so it started in 1942, mm-hmm. so it's 2022, so 80 years. Mm-hmm. And
1: so folks are coming and going, and there's gonna be a big band later tonight. We're gonna to, uh, hear some speeches for, from some dignitaries. Tomorrow there's gonna to be a fly-in. We're looking at possibly having 80 airplanes or more here. Uh, uh, there are a lot of military aircraft already on the field here in Sweetwater and the name of the field is Avenger Field.
2: Yes, Avenger Field Let's make sure out here in Sweetwater, Texas. Yeah, tomorrow we're going to have a C-130 fly in and the pilot will be one of the WASP granddaughters. Oh, great. Hannah Gilpatrick, so that's pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah. And we're going to have a bunch of warbirds, maybe up to like 40 old warbirds, different different kinds, including BT-13. Yeah. So. So yeah, so we have a lot of a lot of warbirds, a cool old fly-in.
1: Yeah. Well, well, Aaron, we appreciate your time with us today, and also your, your passion and compassion for keeping history alive.
2: I appreciate you taking the time to share this this information and story, and help keep the the not only the Women Air Force Service history, like pilots history alive, but you know warbirds and you know all of that history. Well,
1: well we appreciate you fighting the good fight. Final flight, final fight, that helped get wasps uh, reinterred at Arlington uh, National Cemetery, and that was quite a big fight. Like I said, I was uh, at AOPA in the e-media department when that was going on, and I remember how big of a deal that was. And so kudos to you for not giving up.
2: Thank you. I appreciate that. And I appreciate AOPA's support and all the support of all the different organizations that had their members kind of email their congress people and stuff because it does help it seems kind of like who am I am calling this person and it's not important but when you go into the office and there's you know they've been like we've gotten tons of phone calls about this it makes them you know pay attention so it is helpful
1: yet another reason to be an AOPA <laughs> member I'd say yeah. to throw that in at the last minute alright Aaron Miller thanks again for helping us out we appreciate your time today your mom is here I know and you have things to do so hopefully we'll see each other again in the skies
2: alright well thank you so much
0: So, David, the event where the, I think there was what there was one living wasp who attended. Is that right?
1: Absolutely, and she's 99 years old. I got a chance to meet Shirley Krause. She's a, a nice woman. She greeted a lot of folks, and listen, Ian, they had a pretty bodacious-looking fly-in going on there, where they had you know 80 or or more airplanes that flew in. Several warbirds over there in Sweetwater, Texas. Now, Sweetwater is a destination that you just you kind of got to want to go there, and that's where, where the WASP Museum is. That's why it was there. But on Friday night, they had a nice little uh, gala get-together to help fund that museum and some of its uh, you know future exhibits. And they have a great little museum, I must admit. And the folks there were just so gung-ho about aviation, and there was a lot of diversity, something we need more of in aviation, like Aaron said. Yep. So, yeah, it was a great event. I was glad to be part of it, just covering it.
0: All right. Fantastic. So that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hanson.
1: I'm David Toulouse. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash and wherever you get your podcasts.
0: All right. We'll see you next time. See you next time. Talk
1: from AOPA, your freedom to fly.